0: I'm Maria Menunos, and you're tuned in to After Buzz TV, the ESPN of TV talk. Now, let the buzz begin. Hello, hello, everybody out there. Welcome to the Red Table Talk After Show. I'm one of your hosts, Tyler Simone, and I have two of my beautiful co-hosts here today, the Tyler Tyson and Jay Lamar. Hello, what's up?
1: What's up, what's up?
0: What's up? So, if you're new here, we are the Red Table Talk After Show, and we cover the latest Red Table Talk episode. Today, we are going to be covering the newest episode, How Gun Violence Affects Women. What were your overall thoughts about this episode, Tyler?
1: <laughs> My overall <laughs> thoughts about this episode was that it was a waste of time, low-key. Um, you felt like it was? A little bit, a little, just slightly. It was like, it's one of those episodes where if it, it was... Talked about at a different time when when life was quote unquote normal, then it would have been a great episode. And because of everything that was going on, because this episode came out last week, um, it was in the height of like everyone really being outraged, like currently. And so the episode just didn't really make any sense. And at the same time, because it's like, how do we talk about gun violence when everything is going? On? It's like we can't address this nuance until we address the bigger picture which is police brutality so it was just kind of like mm, I see it I hear it but I'm not really into this conversation.
2: I can completely agree I think the timing of the conversation was off and of course it was pre-recorded mm-hmm. um so not a lot of current events had happened like now um so it just seemed like it was just a generic conversation without address addressing the obvious george floyd issues and stuff like that like i i was just like okay like you said tyler they could have maybe kept it in the archives and maybe played it later in the year or actually like a redo um but it it didn't fit the current time
0: yeah i think you guys are right because gun violence is different from police brutality there's two different things and i know in the beginning they kind of tried to tie the two together referencing the women in george floyd's life and women in Ahmad arbery's life which was it was nice for them to kind of make it make sense but i agree like you know the timing was just a little bit off yeah. uh we see lauren london in this episode and we touch on nipsey and um his death again we talked we talked didn't we? we had an episode about it right earlier like
1: we've talked about nipsey a gazillion times yeah yeah
0: i think we did talk about it before Um, But this time it was more so centered around her raising her two black uh, boys without him. So what were your reactions to maybe what you learned listening Mm -hmm. to her experience as the the mother of the two little boys?
1: Well, I thought that uh, once again, when she talked about the the two boys that she's raising, the very first thing that she says that she for once is about the police, which once again goes back to my initial point is the more is the bigger story here is the more important thing and and I don't know how old her kids are I don't remember if she said that or not but I know that they are younger than teenage years and so it's like for her to already be having these conversations you know granted their father was shot dead in the streets for whatever reason and that whole thing is under investigation but she wasn't even really talking about that she was still talking about police brutality. The conversation she had with her kids was about, okay, if the police come to you, this is what you do, this is how you act, yada, 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 because I need you to get home. It wasn't even about grieving the death of Nipsey and having the kids understand why their dad was killed in the first place. It was still police brutality. So I appreciated that part of what she had to say, because that's a very real conversation that Jay Lamar even talked about before, that his mom sat all of them down, and they've had so many conversations about it. So many
2: conversations. I think in the video she said because of how she grew up, that she's always been kind of numb when it comes to killings. Mm-hmm. And because I think that she has that numbness, um, cause she had to deal with it, deal with it at such a young age. I, I think her mentality is, um, more so let me help my children, um, not be a victim. Um, mm-hmm. uh, like other people around them um and i think that's what kind of made it kind of different because you could tell like she wasn't allowed her way of healing was like preparing them for whatever comes after that yeah
0: yeah um yeah they talked a little bit uh about the police and the fear that black men specifically have For the police and I wanted to talk to you guys about that and about maybe when you first started to realize that the way you move through life has to be different because of that do you guys remember when it kind of like clicked to you that you know I'm black and I need to behave this way in order to stay alive
1: Hmm. yeah that's an interesting question I'll let you go first Jay because I have to really think (laughs) the first time it because I think I know but I
2: want to make sure Yeah, I I grew up in predominantly uh, black environments. And, um, you know, I didn't grow up in like the best neighborhoods. Um, So I was very much so aware that I am a black man and the police see me as a black man. And therefore, I need to watch what I do and how I do it Um, from a young age. um, I can remember when my dad got pulled over. And the police officer walked up to the car, and my dad, trying to be calm, cool, and collective, but was still, like, a bit paranoid. And the police officer asked my dad our phone number. And I had just learned our phone number, so I was just saying it all the time. And so my dad actually said our number, like, he said, like, a digit wrong. And mm-hmm. from the back seat, I said, Daddy, our number is da 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 and my dad looked back at me like I can imagine that look he gave you. Like, <laughs> if you don't
0: <laughs> I can imagine
2: it. Um, and and then I remember like one when, when the police officer like walked away from a car, my dad said, When a police officer is talking to me as a black man, you don't respond. You don't talk. I don't want him talking to my children. And it, it immediately <laughs> my thought process was, Oh, well, anytime I'm around police and they're talking to my parents, let me not butt in. Um, because my dad was more so fearful that the police officer would say something derogatory towards me, and then that would cause him to react as a father and a protector. Right. Um, so from a young age, to me, I always knew that there was a difference between my few white friends and my few white family members and me as a black man.
1: Mm-hmm. So mine is a little, it's, a, it's hard to believe. <laughs> it's a little bit different. Um, so I, did not have raised by my dad Willie and my uh, grand my grandmother. Neither one sat me down and had like the police talk. And we didn't grow up in like the wealthy neighborhood, but we weren't in the hood either. We were somewhere in between. Um, and so my experience up until college, all of my friends were white. All of the schools I went to, for the most part, were white or really really diverse. But because I was in AP and honors classes, my 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 constituents, they were all white, um, because what I didn't realize, but later found out was that they didn't readily put black kids in the advanced and honors classes. Like you had to advocate for yourself. Your parents had to fight for you. Like you had to like really be like, no, my child deserves the best, the best, the best. Mm. Um, but I didn't see that as a kid. So it wasn't until I got ready to go to college when I started driving maybe my first interaction with the police and then the conversation was had as yeah I mean I always obviously always knew I was black I always knew being the only black among the white kids obviously getting treated differently from time to time like those things were just there so I knew that but as far as my interaction with the police my first interaction with the police and the first time kind of having that (sighs) nervousness is when I started driving at like 16 15 or 16 somewhere in there and then it's it's just been an ongoing struggle ever since, so um, yeah. of course, we had conversations after that, but it wasn't until I started driving
0: mm. yeah i feel I feel the same way. it wasn't until I started driving that I had to really think about that and that there was fear when a police officer pulled up behind me and I didn't really know why but for black men I, I know it's on a totally different level with everything that's been happening um
1: you know, wait,
2: before, them- you, before yes. you move on real
1: quick you know it's so crazy to me because even hearing you say and hearing other black women talk about mm-hmm. their paranoia their issue with the police it sounds so foreign to me because in my mind The police would never mess with a woman. If you're a woman, you're safe, regardless of what rate. I mean, obviously, we know that's not true. But just the way my mind works, I'm thinking, oh, if they're a woman, the police are absolutely not going to mess with any women. But y'all have the same issues that we have.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, The answer Bland opened up our eyes to that in a completely different way. Um, Because I, too, I thought the same way. I grew up around nothing but boys. And so all of us I thought had a different conversation than you know the two girl cousins that I had or the the two girl neighbors that I had. I mean, we had conversations like I, you guys had it when you started driving. We had it when we first got bikes. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, you know, if you come in, come, come in contact with the officer, give us, give them our phone number, give them our address, and make sure they bring you back here before anything happens and stuff like that. So,
0: yeah, that's
1: and so yeah, talk to my parents about that because I have cousins, of course, you know number of cousins that are in the hood and I love hanging out with my cousins. So I was in the hood. So I'm not trying to make it seem like I wasn't there because I was, but mm-hmm. I just, my, I do not recall my parents giving me this like, yo, this is what you do. This is how you act. I didn't get, I know I didn't get that until I started driving when I probably should have gotten it hanging out in the hood as much as I did with my cousins because it definitely mm-hmm. could have gone tragic real quick.
0: Yes, but you're here and you're safe. (laughs) You mentioned the hood and I kind of wanted to talk about the point she made about high school parties and how traumatizing it is to go to a house party and feel like, okay, where's the exit? If this happens, I'm gonna do this, make sure I get out here. And I wanted to know what you guys' experiences were because I had that too, but I didn't Mm. really realize it it kind of became normal to be on guard at house parties
2: once again for me my mama was like if, if, if we went to anywhere that was in like a small space renee always said you better know where the exit is at all times so even when i went to house parties i was always if i was on the wall like i was always on the wall by the door or like on the wall by a window like I, in my head, I was always trained to always have an escape route, mm-hmm. and like Laura London said, and like Jada said, like as kids, you shouldn't have had that mindset. But growing up in some of the environments that we grew up around, we had to enjoy ourselves, but we also had to protect ourselves at the same time. And you know, my mom always told us when we left the house, "Make sure y'all come back to me. Make sure y'all come back to me." So I, I, I think that me and my brothers felt like it was our responsibility to make sure that not only we looked out for each other's, but that we took care of ourselves in any environment. And where I'm from, we had a lot of basement parties.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like That's Ohio, right? Is that Cleveland?
2: Cleveland, uh-huh. Oh. We had a lot of basement parties. So it wasn't like, you didn't have access to the whole house because you didn't want like going up in your mama's room. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> you do a basement party. So even in the basement, there's no exit in the basement. Right. Like we yeah. would always me my brother my friends. We would always be posted up like by the stairs. Just in case a fight broke out or something broke out. I mean, we knew how to get out. Yeah. But we, thinking back to it, it is like I want to make sure that my kids are as a, aware that I as as street smart as my mom would say as I was. Um but then also you want them to enjoy life. life. But yes. the thing oh, that we're yeah. in is like they have to enjoy life, but they have to also be very, very conscious of mm-hmm. the environment that they're in. Yes.
0: Yes.
1: Yeah, so um as far as house parties go in, in high school, so I was that G in high school. It, like, I was the kid. Listen, every, every mother loved me in high school, uh, whether I was dating your daughters or not. They just loved me. <laughs> and so if whoever I was with, they would normally have a curfew of, let's say, like 11 or 12. If they were with me, their curfew could be as long as I was out, and my parents let me stay out till I was like like until like two in the morning. So high school, I didn't really have any um house party issues unless mm-hmm. I was throwing the house party, and in which case it was never at a house. it was at some location. Uh, but in college though, I went to a HBCU family all day, and that's when my house party experience really took on a whole new life and like Jay Lamar said uh, we don't have basements in Florida because you know we are you can't go too low below ground before you hit water so um it was just normal <laughs> I told Not you it was normal <laughs> regular uh, house parties <laughs> and um yeah I didn't have I didn't have any issues like there were never any fights uh every now and then somebody would drink too much and it was a thing but I didn't have any issues. And whenever something got out of control, like Jay said, I was the first one out the door. Mm-hmm. So if That'd something go. was, there was one scuffle I remember, and there were a lot of underage drinking going on. And once again, I was out the door. So
0: Yes. Well, that kind of brings us to another topic they brought up in this episode, which was gang violence and how gang violence not only affects the targeted person, whomever that is, but it affects the people that they leave behind if they do end up passing. And then also just putting innocent people in harm's way and people being killed for just being there in the area. And we got introduced to Erica Ford who created uh, Life Camp Inc. She had that big orange bus, which was really, really cool. Um, how did you guys feel about her wanting to help both the people that, the people's families that are left behind and then talking to the gang member? Because I thought that that was really interesting.
2: I think it's a good conversation. I think it's a good conversation and and a a good, uh, meaningful thought to have. I mean, Mm -hmm. there are so many, when one person dies, there's so many people affected, Mm -hmm. um, the killer's family is affected as well. Um, the victim's family is traumatically affected. Uh, so kind of providing that support for those two groups, um, I think is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's the same thing with uh, the whole prison thing.
1: Like when people go to prison, it's not just the inmate whose lives have changed, it's the entire family. So, I mean, you can only imagine when someone gets killed your entire family is affected, both the victim's family and the person that that took the other person's life. Everybody's lives are affected. So I think that um, it's a I think it's a pretty good idea to have, you know, the, the person at some point have a conversation with the, the victim's family if they're open to it. Yeah. Um, of course, you have to be respectful, depending on the circumstances. If the victim's family is like, you know what, I'm just not there yet. I'm not at a place. I don't know if I'll ever be at a place. You have to respect that. And as the person that caused that issue, you really have to respect it because you're the one that caused all of this in the first place. You took this person's life. And so you have to understand that they may not want to talk to you.
0: Exactly. And yeah, the, she sat down with a Primo, who was a former gang member. It was Her name was Norleen, whose son was shot five times. And I can't imagine what she was feeling to sit down with someone who... Not to say that that was her son's killer, but it's just to sit down with someone who's involved in the same stuff, I'm sure, was really hard for her. And like you said, Tyler, it seems like the best thing you can do to stop things like this from happening is just to have a conversation and to see both sides. Because it seems like it just takes us sitting face-to-face to to understand.
1: Yeah, that's all it takes is a face-to-face conversation. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes it takes more some- than that. But sometimes a face-to-face. Yes. Yes. Yeah.
0: Sometimes it takes more than that. Um they also what else do I want to talk about? Oh, about are, uh, yes.
1: I was gonna say I don't know if our producers can hear us, uh, but the guest that we have on the show is in the wings at some point whenever y'all are ready. We'll continue. Okay. <laughs> oh, a special guest. Hi! Yay! Hey, can you hear me? Hi,
0: uh, how are yeah. you? Uh,
1: so
2: I, I'll go ahead. Good. And how are you text. doing?
1: Y'all, good. this right here is my boy Greg Bishop. Um, you can give your actual credentials in a minute, as far as like what you do uh, <laughs> verbatim. Um, and also, if you don't mind, can you turn your phone horizontal uh, so that we can oh, is that screen effect? I think you have in to unlock room. it or something. It should be a lot. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, so Greg and I have known each other since college. This he was my first uh, program director at the first radio station that I ever worked at, Um, and now he works in uh, New York City in the mayor's office. Um, And like I said, he can give you his actual credentials and title and perfect and all of that great stuff. So, Greg, way, welcome to the Red Table Talk After Show. We're talking about uh, gun violence. Um, and We're kind of tying it into police brutality a little bit. I know you're there in New York City, and you guys have been going through a whole overhaul with COVID-19 and with everything that's going on. So I thought this would be the perfect place to kind of talk to you and get your input on things. So we have Jay Lamar, as well as my girl, Miss Tyler Simone. So welcome to the Red Table Talk After Show all right well th- well thank you very much for having me and and uh and and, and
3: uh, i want to say that it is so good to see you uh it's been a long time in terms of like a long way from you know w a m so congratulations on on your show <laughs> you. and, and all the stuff that you guys uh, worked on um so i i have been in government for 11 years. Um, I was the most recently the former commissioner of small business services here in New York City. And right now I'm a senior advisor for uh, small business uh, recovery uh, and focus. Yeah, focus on does that mean that businesses did not get the monies that they they needed. And most of those businesses were either Black or Latino businesses um, because most of our businesses tend to be small. So my job is to work with the private sector and figure out how and how we can connect the the fact that the private sector wants to help our small businesses uh, with
1: the communities that really need that help. Uh, So that's what I'm doing now okay and we lost some of what you said at the beginning because it was kind of like breaking up a little bit um oh, dude, so we'll, we'll did we need I to- noticed you froze
3: too
1: <laughs> yeah we, so we'll In probably that. need you to uh, repeat at least the beginning of exactly what you do we heard the tell end of it um, just so our, our listeners are completely clear on uh, yeah. you know uh, so so I, in New York City, I, and, and I think you
3: heard the I've been in government for 11 years under two administrations, uh, but my job right now is as senior advisor for small business recovery is to help connect the private sector who wants to help small businesses uh, with uh, the community. And, and when I say the community, meaning uh, there are neighborhoods in New York City that were disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. Most of them, if not all of them, were Black and Latino neighborhoods. And those small businesses in those neighborhoods really need additional help. Uh, so if you have, and, and many companies here in New York City are very concerned about our small businesses and the ability for our small businesses to recover.
1: So they want to help. And my job is to make that connection. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to let everybody else kind of jump in and ask their questions. I think I just have one general question and I'll get mine <laughs> out of the way. Um, because like I, I've known you for so long and I know how, how you are involved in the community just across the board, both at work and, and outside of work. In yep. terms of what is the atmosphere, the vibe, everything like in New York, considering the heightened... <sighs> Uh, attention to um, the disproportionate effects of blackness in this country, and how we're affected by the police and COVID and everything. Like, what is the mindset in New York?
3: Yeah, so you know, I, I would say that you know, COVID. Um, let's start with COVID first, and and the mindset was, you know, uh, we're a resilient city, right? New York, as you know, uh, is a global city. Uh, we are used to. Being a target uh, for terrorists, uh, we're used to, um, you know, the fact that we have such density challenges that other cities don't deal with, um, so, but we're a resilient city. So, you know, Hurricane Sandy impacted our city, uh, 9-11 impacted our city. Uh, I could go far back as, uh, and I wasn't around, just to be clear. But like in the late 70s,
1: (laughs) in the late
3: 70s, you know, when the Bronx was burning, uh, when we had, you know, real racial challenges here in the city, but we've always recovered. So this was always sort of like, okay, let's figure out how we can help our small businesses during this moment. And then let's figure out how we will rebuild because New Yorkers are resilient. New Yorkers are like, we will get through this. George Floyd sort of changed the narrative a little bit, right? So COVID had already established, like, okay, why are Black and Latino populations more impacted, right? And then there was the conversation about, well, most of the, most of the Black community are essential workers mm-hmm. or didn't have the luxury of working from home because of the careers that they're in or couldn't afford to leave the city like most of our wealthy residents did when they left and went out to the Hamptons or upstate or wherever. Right. Most of our black and Latino citizens rode the subway. Right. They didn't have access to, um, you know, private vehicles. Right. Uh, So there there then started to be a conversation uh, and it's always been happening. But a conversation about, wait a minute, like we just can't recover and go back to normal. Right. There is no no like normal will mean that if this happens again, then the same community will be impacted. So yeah. what can we do about it? Uh, so the mayor created a race and, and equity task force. Um, I'm on the, the workforce committee. And basically we were talking about, okay, well, what can we do to get individuals into better jobs, right? Um, the service industry was impacted tremendously. And when I say service, like hotels, I mean, New York thrives on tourism, right? Everybody wants to come to New York. You want to go to Broadway play. You want to have a restaurant. You want to go to a club. All that is closed, right? So, so. Everyone in those sectors, and they're predominantly Black and Latino, they're unemployed, right? So the question is, like, how do we then use the funding that we have to help retrain service workers? Like, how do we figure out, and, you know, New York as a whole, and I could go, I could do a whole show about, like, just New York. And if if anyone is interested, they should read The Power Broker by Robert Mo, uh, about Robert Moses, um, who was an urban planner. Um and in the forties and fifties, but there's questions about whether he was racist or not, right? Because every single highway, every single major infrastructure went through black neighborhoods, right? So when you have those things happening, what do you have? An increase in asthma rates because you have all these trucks running through your neighborhoods, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So you have an increase in asthma, you're more susceptible to COVID, right? have diabetes because you don't well well why because there's no fresh food in black neighborhoods or communities of color right so there's so many systemic racism built into all our systems that we're now having a hard conversation about how can we change that right how can we change the fact that there's a lot of black individuals who own property but they're in the furthest area city susceptible to climate change right the Mm -hmm. sea levels are expected to rise and their property value will decrease because they're going to be in a floodplain, right? That is lost wealth, right? Because you know, if you have property, that's where you get the home equity loan to start your business or whatever. If you don't have property, then you're kind of screwed, right? So there's a lot of now focus on the systemic racism that just inherit, that's inherent in all the structures of government and how we could actually change that and what we can do about that.
0: That was an amazing answer. <laughs> Thank you for that. I feel like yeah. I learned a lot just within that right. one.
1: Right. Just in that one answer. Just I'm in the like, one.
0: Long, a lot of things I
1: didn't even think about. <laughs> it's like this ongoing thing. I'm real deep. It was. Listen,
3: I, it, it, there's, there's a lot. And and I've, you know, and, and, you know, you know that I'm passionate about this work because you know, one of the things we need to talk about, we need to talk about, you know, there's a book that I would recommend all your viewers to read, which is called The Black Tax. It's by Sean Rochester. Um, I'm not plugging it because he's my fraternity brother. I'm plugging
1: it because he breaks it down. in.
0: So, Greg, I had a question for you about how we move on from this and in particular how white people can move on and and continue the conversation in the rooms right. that we're not present in because right. uh, like you were saying it's important to to have the conversations but for them you know what is what are things that they can do because it's it's one thing coming from us but i do know that white allies is, has been a really big conversation lately
3: yeah so, and I would say that you know that's a great question. Uh, so, there's a couple of things, and and I'll be quick uh, because I realize if if I get too deep, then it's going to freeze again. Uh, but literally, uh, first, this country needs to like knowledge that racism exists, right? Uh, we have not done that, uh, and and if you look at, for example, South Africa, they had a truth and then reconciliation mm. commission, right? The truth is, this country was built on the labor of the enslaved, right? And we, as a country, need to acknowledge that. And and whether you're black, white, I mean, we, we know this, right? But our white allies need to acknowledge that and then understand what has happened, the systemic racism that's been built into every infrastructure, and then use their privilege, right? So the, the, the answer to your question is, what type of conversation, so as a white person, And I look around the table and I don't see any representation, then I'm going to start saying, hey, what are we doing to increase the diversity of this board? If I'm a CEO, right, understand that if you start a company, if your first five employees, if you don't have diversity in your first five employees, you will not have a diverse organization. So understanding that and then understanding how to actually be intentional about finding talent. There's no excuse and everyone says, I cannot find that particular talent. Mm. That is not accurate, right? You can find that talent. You just have to put in extra work because we're out there. Look at everyone on this call right now. Like, like literally, we are, we are educated. We've gone to school. We have talent, right? It's using your privilege to make sure that you address a, a systemic issue. That's a conversation our white allies need to start having. Mm, I like
2: Absolutely. that, that's a good
3: effort. yeah.
2: What type of things has your job done to make you feel like a key asset as a black man? And what type of advice would you give organizations that are struggling with making their black employees feel like they're important? So, I mean,
3: so there's a couple of things, right? So in government, and that's the other thing, we there need to be more me in government, right? A lot of us, I get it. You're focused on me taking the money, Uh, if you're not at the table, like literally you can't have that influence. So, you know, we've talked, uh, I started in one administration, the Bloomberg administration, and at that time it was all about how do you increase the amount of contracts that we are awarding to minority and women-owned businesses and the the strategies that we could take there um, and pushing that agenda. Uh, Then this mayor, Mayor de Blasio came in um, and put in a lot more resources uh, so we were able to increase the utilization uh, to almost like 30%. Um, last fall, I did a whole initiative around Black entrepreneurs because I was very specific. Like government needs to have an answer for Black entrepreneurs. So I was able to do that because I was in a position uh, to actually not only implement, but actually affect policy, right? Um, I would say for the your second part of the question, um, because I have seen small you know businesses because i've seen um you know just um different uh, organizations uh and i've participated in leadership program where we talk about power and privilege i'm able to have direct conversations about race mm-hmm. you have to be able to to not only have those conversations but have a structured conversation in a way that you end up with what are we going to do about this problem? It's easy to identify the problem. And I'll tell you, Mm -hmm. uh, folks and stakeholders have told me a number of times when we're talking about the the Black community, the Black community has been studied and studied and studied to death, right? You can even look at uh, the federal government just recently um, when the president talked about, oh, uh, I don't know why COVID is impacting the Black community. We're going to do a study. Everybody said, no. (laughs) There are studies out there. We know exactly Mm -hmm. what the problem is. Uh, So it's really more...
1: Uh, we lost,
3: right? No, we, just do we, a we got, we got frozen again. Okay, just we're
1: slightly, good. Just, yeah, just slightly.
0: <laughs>
3: Technology. <laughs> See, I feel this is a conspiracy because they don't want us <laughs> to be <mean>, great. I, <laughs> I bet
0: I you know, know. this
3: never happened. This never happened until like that, that black dude got on and started spitting about. It. But listen, in case anyone missed it, the Black Tax definitely uh, find that book and educate yourself, right? Because in in the, to follow up on that question, you cannot have a, a conversation about race if you don't know like the history uh, to educate someone else right and this yeah. is not about feelings right this is not about i feel bad because you looked at me the wrong way this book is about facts right this book is about this is how many black folks were enslaved this is the earning potential of those black folks this is the money that was lost right it's all dollars and cents so anyone can understand dollars and cents and by doing that then you can really have a
1: good conversation. Yeah, I feel you on that. Yeah. Well, Greg, I do appreciate because we are running out of time. I appreciate you uh, hitting us up. There's so much more I want to ask you, but you know, <laughs> we're limited on time, so I'm sure we'll be having more conversations. So this could be a teaser, and then I, oh, you can you can
3: get, get yeah. so like, you know, everybody loved the conversation; they want more, and I will, you know, set aside a whole hour, two hours, whatever, because I'm passionate about this stuff, and and the more, the more, the more of us us that are having deliberations the better it is uh for the community as a whole um so anyway happy to 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 be here and and thanks for
1: inviting me well i'll definitely be hitting you up because i i want to know black lives matter we need to figure out how we can utilize the information that you have and and use it to help the agenda so you'll definitely be getting more phone calls for me
2: absolutely as an entrepreneur entrepreneur, i'm gonna hit you up (laughs) (laughs) absolutely
0: Thank you so much for being here. We learned a lot just in this short time. Yeah, we definitely need to have you on again, for sure. We'll plan it.
1: Tell the people where they can uh, find, like follow you on Instagram and all of that stuff.
3: So you can follow me uh, at Greg Bishop and it's Greg with two Gs, so G-R-E-G-G, Bishop. Um, And uh, you can also follow me on Twitter, Greg Bishop, NYC. Uh, Or you can go to my website at uh gregbishop.nyc
0: yes head there follow him on all the socials in the meantime until next week you can follow all of us as well on instagram you can follow me at miss tyler simone tyler where can they follow you
1: you can of course follow me and get your entire life at the tyler tyson on all social
2: media platforms Okay. whatever you're looking for, you can come follow me. Also <laughs> my words that I am Jay Lamar.
0: Yes. We will see you guys next week. Stay safe. Our founder, Kevin Undergaro and me, Maria Menunos, would like to thank you for tuning in to AfterBuzz TV. Remember we're not just the first, we're the biggest in the world and we're the only destination for all your favorite TV shows, whatever you crave, we've got it. So go to AfterBuzzTV.com and check out our lineup.